All right, how many people have an easy pass? Anyone? Okay, is anyone amazed at easy pass? Okay, so I was driving to Maine, uh, and it felt like I was driving to Russia because it just kept going. And it just, where I was going in Maine, it just, it just kept getting longer and longer, and it just felt really far. But as I'm driving on, uh, I guess it would be 95 and then eventually Route 1, but on 95, they have the easy pass. And so I have one of those little, little passes, which I've always been kind of amazed by, but typically when I'm driving on the highway and you have your easy pass, you've got to slow down to like 5, 10 miles an hour, and you go, and little green light says, you're good to go, move on. It doesn't say that, but it just lights up green. But as I'm driving down 95, they've got now a whole new separate lane where you can go like 65, 70 miles an hour through, and I don't know how, but it records your car. And not only just your car, because I'm driving at like 65, 70 miles an hour with dozens of other cars. And so my wife and I and my sister were in the car and we we're driving up to Maine and we start having this conversation of Easy Pass and how amazing Easy Pass is and how does it work and how can you drive so fast and a satellite beams up to a satellite, shoots down, registers your car, sends information to, like how does it all work? And I'm sure some of here could actually explain how the whole Easy Pass system works. But in that moment in time, I was in a sense of wonder and awe over Easy Pass. It's absolutely phenomenal. Bridges. Have you ever driven over a bridge and be like, this is phenomenal. How is this bridge not sinking further into the water? I'm not talking about bridges over land. I'm talking about like bridges like where the big beams are. How do they not sink further and further into the water? How does that work? That's amazing to me. Cell phones. Okay. It makes sense when you have a phone and it's connected to a wire, and you're like, I can kind of understand how I say something and it travels through that wire to the other dude on the other line. That, I can, that doesn't even really make sense to me, but <laughs> cell phones, absolutely amazing that I can be talking on my cell phone and it beams up my voice to satellites miles away and then beams it back down to some other person wherever they might be, and they could be across the world, they could be sitting right next to you. Have you ever done that before? You called someone who's sitting in the car just to see how quickly? This is what I do. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And so as I'm driving in the car having these conversations about easy pass and bridges and cell phones, microwaves, I think microwaves are phenomenal too, just to throw that in there. You can put a cold meal in and 30 seconds later it's heaven. <laughs> I don't know how that works either, but... Uh, when is the last time that you had a sense of awe and wonder about something? I'm being, you know, obviously these are goofy examples, as it were, of easy passes and bridges. Phenomenal, but when's the last time you've been in awe? You've been less speechless. You're like, wow, this is amazing. And as I was thinking about that, it's like, wow, Michael, you are so enamored, impressed, in awe of an easy pass, of a bridge, of a cell phone. When's the last time you had that attitude, that response, that reaction towards the God of the universe? And I was like, wow, well done, self-conviction. <laughs> and I'm thinking about, I'm so quickly and easily enamored with things that man has made, man has concocted. I mean, the fact that someone made it, it's, it's doable. It's, someone can understand it. Might be only one person on the planet who understands Easy Pass, but he did it. What about God? as it relates to just your relationship with God, as your understanding of God, your knowledge of God. 
when is the last time it has led you to say, wow? Like where it's just, you've been left with this awe-inspiring, that is amazing. Now, as I've been going through Romans and studying and reading and just praying through Romans, I see Paul, the more he thinks about God, the more he seeks to understand God, the more it actually leads him to worship. And so one of the things that I really wanted to drive home today is this idea that is your theology, your understanding of God, is it leading to doxology? And doxology just is a fancy way to say worship. Is your theology leading you towards worship? Is what you know about God, is what you understand about God, when you think about God, is it actually leading you, causing you, inspiring you to worship God? I see with Paul, it, the more he thought and dwelled upon the things of God, and he is thinking and dwelling upon some phenomenally difficult things to understand, but it's leading him not to confusion, not towards indifference, not towards frustration, not towards bitterness. It's actually leading him to worship God. And so this is the question I, I really want to hammer home today. Is what you know about God actually leading you causing you to worship God. We're going to walk through not all of it. Uh, I was going to try and knock out all of chapter 11, but there's just so much in there. Uh, but I wanted to start at the end, the end of chapter 11. So in order to kind of start at the beginning, it was, it's helpful for me at least to look at the very end of Romans chapter 11, and it says this. Oh, the depths of the riches. This is Apostle Paul speaking. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Just that one verse right there, Paul's like, wow, when I just even consider, it's amazing. The riches, the depths, the wonders of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What Paul knew about God, what he understood about God, led him to pen those words. Is what you know about God as you sit here today, is how you're understanding God, is it leading you? Could you pen that? Would you be able to write down it is absolutely amazing who God is. Unsearchable, the depths, the riches. God is absolutely amazing. Paul, the more he sat in theology and thinking, learning how to think about God, think rightly about God, it led him to worship God. Now, I hope that as we've wrestled with some really, the, if you've been at Genesis the past um, I don't know, three months, we've been really tackling some really difficult subjects uh, as a community walking through Romans. The subjects of things like the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the sovereignty of God, free will and how free will and sovereignty work out, the doctrine of election, doctrine of judgment. I mean, we've been talking about really hard things. The Bible presents it, so we will wrestle with it. But as we wrestle with these things, I'm just wondering in our thinking and wondering and asking and searching and seeking out what Scripture says, I hope and I, I, I desire 
that we as a community actually are not just becoming theologically smart, theologically where we have ideas and answers, but I hope that our theology, how we understand God, is actually leading us to worship him. Uh, Sam Storms, who is a pastor, author, said this, the ultimate goal of theology isn't knowledge, but worship. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead to the joyful praise of God, we have failed. Let me just stop there. If what we're doing in terms of how we're thinking about God is not leading to the joyful praise, worship, adoration of God, you've just missed the point. You've failed completely. He goes on and says, we learn, we learn only that we might laud, which is to say that theology without doxology is idolatry. The only theology worth studying is a theology that can be sung. I love that picture of, as I'm thinking about God, what's actually starting to form in the depths of me, my soul, my heart, is a song. Is a song of praise, is a song of adoration, a song of worship, not a song of, this is too difficult, I don't want to think about this, or this is too hard, or if this is how God did it, then I don't want God, I don't care about God. It's not leading us towards indifference or frustration, confusion, or anger. I'm not saying there's, not, there's a time to wrestle, but there's got to come a time where it says, you know what, I want to worship. I want to worship God for who he is, not for who I want him to be. Uh, this morning, we're going to walk through Romans chapter 11, some of it, not all of it, but really this is the end of section one of Romans. We're coming to the end of, and there's only two sections, by the way. <laughs> um, we're coming to the end of, end of section one. So if you look at Romans, you can say Romans 1, chapter 1, through Romans chapter 11, verse 30, 36, is all about theology of how we, we are to understand God, how we are to think about God, think rightly about God, and how we relate with him. Uh, or section two uh, really gets into how do I live rightly in light of who God is, what you could call just practical theology of how do I live my life in light of what I now know about who God is. So I'm really excited, uh, not next Sunday, but uh, the following Sunday, we're going to start our journey into the second section, and we're going to spend uh, all of June and July uh, in Romans chapter 12 through 16. And it is a really beautiful but challenging section of this is how we are to live our lives in light of who God is. But in Romans chapter 11, we're going to really cover some really challenging things, specifically what is the future role of the Jewish nation? What is the future role of Israel? And what does my relationship as a Gentile, and by the way, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, uh, what is my relationship and how does all of my life and my salvation, my relationship with God, how does it work out in light of God's master plan, as it were, uh, for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish, his covenant people? Um, and as we walk through chapter 11, uh, as I've been reading and studying, I really see Paul presents some reasons, uh, some, some way, not just ways, but some reasons why we should be worshiping God so that when we end at the chapter 11, we actually end with a doxology. We don't end by saying, wow, this is just really confusing. We end of saying, wow, this is really amazing. Chapter 11, for some I've known other people and heard about people, they literally skip chapter 11 because it's a really challenging chapter. 
Um, we're not going to do that, by the way. Uh, but I'm just, that's a, it's a challenging section of Scripture. Now, one of the things that I love about God is that I don't know all of God. I am thankful that I do not understand all of God. I'm thankful that I do not comprehend all of God. Can you imagine if you understood everything there was to understand about God? Do you think if you had that vastness of knowledge that you would worship something that you understood, something that you could articulate so well? I don't think you would. Why would you worship something that you could control? Why would you worship something that you can completely understand? I'm thankful that when I consider God, you know, we sing a song on occasion called Indescribable. I'm just thankful that I have God's even revealed a glimpse, a picture of who he is. But I, I, could, I could not possibly, and by the way, neither could you, fathom all there is to understand about God. And because of that, that should lead us to worship. Again, I'm quoting Sam Storms, and he says this, Worship without wonder is lifeless and boring. Many have lost their sense of awe and amazement when it comes to God. Having begun with the arrogant presumption of knowing about God, all that one can. They reduce him to manageable terms and confine him to a tidy theological box, the dimensions of which conform to their preferences, their preference of what a God ought to be and do. I, don't, I can't put God in a box. I can just say God is just too big. I can't understand all of there is to God, but what I do know of God, what he's revealed to me, uh, I want to worship. I just want to give thanks. I want to have a sense of awe and wonder. A desire for all of us that when someone, if you were to describe God to a friend, hypothetically, someone comes up to you tomorrow uh, or when you go back to work, wherever you're going to be, they come up and say, how would you describe God? What would your answer be? I mean, by the way, that's a fair question, and, and hopefully that's going to happen to you at least once or twice in your lifetime. I wonder if how we would describe what we know about God, and we can't know all there is to know about God, but would your description of what you know of God, what you understand of God, what God's revealed to you, would it lead that person, would it cause that person to say, wow, if God's like that, I want to know this God. If what you've just described to me is at all true, I must know the God that you have just described. I fear that for many of us, if we got posed with that question, our answer would just leave people saying, oh, well, that's interesting. I'll have, to, I'll have to look into that. I might consider that one day when my life gets to be more than I can handle. Again, is what you know of God, is it leading you to worship? So much so when someone asks the question, how do you understand God? What do you know about God? That person says, if that's true, I want to know the God you're talking about. I'm going to lay out uh, three, maybe four uh, reasons throughout the end of actually chapter 10 as well as uh, chapter 11 of reasons why we should worship God. Three, maybe four reasons of why we should worship God. When we think about him, it should lead us to worship. Number one is this, God does not reject those who reject him. Say that again. God does not, okay, that's an important, does not reject those who reject him. Now, at the very end of chapter 10, 
Paul's asking her, her a question regarding his, his Jewish brothers and sisters. The question is, well, did they not hear the gospel? Did they not understand it because they're not receiving the gospel? My brothers and sisters are not flocking to the Messiah. God promised a Messiah, a Redeemer, an anointed one, the Christ. He's come, but yet they continue to reject. So did they just not hear this good news? Did they not understand this good news? And he says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So Paul is saying it's not that they did not hear the message of the gospel. It is not that they did not understand the message of the gospel. The problem is not with God. It's not that God did not reveal or speak or reveal who the Messiah was. So the problem was not with God rejecting people. The problem was with Israel that they were both disobedient and obstinate. How many times have you ever seen a disobedient kid? If you're a parent, well, you've seen it plenty of times. But you've seen like, you know, examples of where you're in the mall or the store and you see a kid just totally being disobedient to their parent. You know, if you see that, you're like, wow, that's just, I feel really bad. That's an awkward situation. I'm just going to go the other way. But have you ever met an obstinate person? We kind of know what disobedience looks like, but have you ever met an obstinate person? Now, if we're honest, you might not have to look too much further than the mirror. An obstinate person, how you understand that, is just a stubborn person. You ever heard the phrase pig-headed? That's what it means to be obstinate, stubborn, set in their ways, pig-headed. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, I'm staying here. My heels are dug in. I don't care what evidence, what proof. I don't care how inspiring. I'm, I'm right here. I am not changing my course. And this is what Paul is saying is the question was not did God, God didn't reject Israel. Israel was both disobedient and they were obstinate. They were set in their ways. So they refused to submit, meaning they refused to be obedient to God. And they just had a stubbornness of heart. Now, did you catch the end of, of 21? All day long, this is a quote from the Old Testament. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient people, an obstinate people. What is the posture of God towards the people of Israel? His hands are open to them. His hands are not just closed like this. You're disobedient, you're obstinate, I'm done with you. One of the things that, one of the reasons why we should worship God is because we worship a God who does not reject those who reject him. What happens when someone rejects you? We've all, you know, been rejected, whether it was by, sometimes by your own spouse, uh, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a friend, a neighbor. What happens to you when someone literally just rejects you? Now, this might be you, but I see a lot of people who live with what I'll just call a rejection complex. They've been rejected once, and so what happens is they shut down. They are relationally, emotionally closed to anyone else ever. Why? Because I've been hurt once and I'm not doing it again. So my posture is like this. I'll be nice, I'll be friendly, but I'm closed. Can you imagine if God took that posture with those that rejected him? Can you imagine if 
the way God was, was that you rejected God once. You ignored whatever you did. God said, boom, I'm done with you. You're out. One rejection, you're gone. And by the way, because you rejected me, I'm completely closed off to the rest of humanity because I'm fearful of what humanity will do to me if this is what you've done. Can you imagine after Adam and Eve sinned and the rest of humanity, they never had an opportunity to know God, to relate with God, because God refused. He rejected those who rejected him. I like how Samuel uh, says this, the prophet Samuel, in 1 Samuel 12, uh, verse 20 through 22. Do not be afraid. And he's saying this to the Israelites who were, at the time, really stubborn, very disobedient. They were being obstinate. All sorts of idols going on, worshiping false gods. And Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. God made a promise. God made a covenant. He entered into that covenant. And God is concerned about his name, his fame, his glory, his renown. And though people would reject him, God does not take the posture of, I'm done with you. I reject you. I am thrilled that God, the God that I know, does not rule me out because of my sin or my disobedience or my obstinance, my hard-heartedness. God's posture towards you, towards me, is not one of close-handed, but one of open-handed. Why? Because God is concerned about his glory, his fame. If he's called you into relationship with you, if he's chosen you, if you know him by name, you can worship God because he does not reject those that reject him. Why should this truth that God does not reject those who reject him, why should it lead you to worship? Like, why should you hear this and be like, wow, that's amazing, that's, that's better than easy pass. <laughs> that's better than the bridge system. Why should you hear this truth that God remains open-handed towards you? His posture is open to you. Why should you hear that and say, I, I can worship a God who's like that. I can be in awe of a God who is like that. I like how uh, Jay Packer uh, answered this question. He said, there is However, equally great incentive to worship and to love God in, in, the, in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose, not merely that we know God, but that he knows us. As I sat with uh, what Dr. Packer had said, it is an awe Awesome, awe-inspiring thing to know that God not only wants to know me, but God made that possible. He made that relationship possible. That when I sinned, when I rebelled, when I did my own thing, I was pig-headed, stubborn of heart, God didn't close his hands and say, Davis, you're done. I'm so done with you. Never again will I give you a chance to know me or to walk with me. Now, please don't misunderstand. I am not suggesting 
that there are not consequences for our disobedience, for our sin, for our hard-heartedness. Okay, there is a difference between diso- or there is a difference between being corrected, being disciplined, and being shut out. God, absolutely, God disciplines His children. So if you're currently walking in disobedience, do not walk away from here saying, "Oh, well, God's cool with that," because He's going to, you know, absolutely open arms to me when I decide to come back home. No, what you're doing today, there will be consequences tomorrow. There will be discipline. God would not be a loving God if he didn't discipline us. So do not walk away with that message that I don't have to worry about ever being rejected by God so I can just do my own thing. I'm not saying that at all. When we turn, when we repent, you are met by a God who is gracious. And his grace is enough to cover whatever the disobedience, hard-heartedness, stubbornness was. Now, I'm not sure of how many other churches in America open their service by saying uh, the Bruins are going to the Stanley Cup. But um, <laughs> how many people have been watching the Bruins all season? Uh, like, actual show of hands. I want to know who's been watching all, like, 600 games of the hockey season. Okay, there's like six of you. Okay, how many people are now watching the Bruins or at least checking the score? Be honest, you fair weather fans. Okay, <laughs> you can jump on the train. It's a good train to jump on. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Uh, but that's typically, that's me. I could care less about hockey, but I love this city. So I'm like, oh, sweet. The Boston Bruins are in the Stanley Cup. I'll watch. I'm excited. I'll cheer. I'll root. I roll like that. But I didn't watch one game at all, okay? We kind of get the, we get frustrated when we see other people jumping on the ship that we've been in all season. Because when the ship is going down, it's like I'm by myself. But when the ship is like, you know, not going down as it were, and you're about to win something major, you're like, wow, it's getting pretty crowded on here. The Jews had their own ship. They were God's covenant people, God had selected them, had chosen them from all other nations. God said, you are my people and I will be your God. You are my people and I will be your God. But now, after Jesus has come and has died and has resurrected, there's a lot of Jews who are looking around on their ship and saying, huh, this is kind of strange. We used to have just Jewish people on this ship. It used to just be a lot of the covenant people on this ship. There certainly seems to be a lot more Gentile people who are jumping on this ship. This is not right. What is going on that so many Gentiles are now coming to faith and claiming that they actually have a relationship with God? How is that possible? If you're a Jewish person, you're starting to wonder, did God get so tired of us, so sick of us, that he said, enough of the Jewish people, I'm done with you, I'm going with the Gentiles. Thousands and thousands of years, I'm tired of you, I'm going with these people, I like them better. And that's the question that they were asking. And so in Romans 11, chapter 1, or verse 1, Paul says this, I ask then, did God reject his people? His own answer, by no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. The apostle says, Absolutely not. If God rejected his people, then that means he rejected Paul. Paul was an Israelite. 
Like he, tribe of Benjamin, the list is long of his Jewish culture and tradition. If God had rejected, that means Paul was rejected as well. And then the next few verses in Romans chapter 11 to help articulate this point that God did not actually reject Israel at all. Not at all. Paul recalls the story of Elijah. Now in the Old Testament, there's a prophet, his name's Elijah, and uh, he's going to battle against his own country. His own country had given way towards worshiping false gods. Men who used to be set apart to be priests for God had now turned and were worshiping false gods and were leading the nation astray into apostasy. And that's what apostasy means, by the way, of you were once over here with God, but now you've steered and you're walking a different direction. You've gone apostate. And so Elisha is not only confused, but he's frustrated. And he says, God, am I the only person left in the entire nation that actually cares about you, that wants to fight for you, that wants to love you, that wants to worship you? And Paul recounts this story in Romans 11, verse 3 through 4. He says this, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. So not only am I the only one left, but it's not going well for me, God. Everyone's now trying to tear my life apart and take my life from me. Verse 4, and what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was just a, an idol god. Have you ever had one of those Elijah moments where it's just like, man, it's just me. No one else loves God, cares about God, worships. I'm just, it's just me. God, where is everyone else? You ever sat in church and you actually felt like, am I the only one here that's worshiping? Am I the only one here that actually cares about God? Now, you might not vocalize that, but you might think that. And God would say to you, it is ridiculous to think that you are the only one, that I have only reserved or protected, guarded just you. Everyone else, I've just let do their own thing. Just as God, uh, Paul says um, uh, in uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, chapter 11, at the end of verse 4, I have reserved for myself 7,000. Okay? So Paul is trying to remind the Jewish people hey, I did this before. When everyone else was going apostate, I kept. I reserved, I protected 7,000 who were not bowing the knee to a false God, but were still bowing the knee to me, the one true God. And Paul is introducing a, a very difficult truth to understand that even though it looks like Israel, the Jewish nation, has completely rejected the gospel, Paul is saying, no, there is a remnant. God has promised to keep a remnant of Jewish men and women who will come to the gospel, who will call upon the name of Christ. So just as God kept a remnant, God is keeping a remnant now. And it is a remnant, by the way, that is absolutely all by grace. So reason number two, reason number one to worship God was those who reject, God does not reject those who reject him. Reason number two is why our the theology should lead to doxology is God is faithful to those he's called. 
Those he's called mean those he's foreknew. So those that God has called, set apart for himself, God will be faithful to them. Romans 11, 5 through 6 says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, if it were grace would no longer be grace. Paul is saying that despite the appearance that everyone in Israel, everyone of the Jewish nation is absolutely rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, rejecting the gospel, God will remain faithful. Okay, 2,000 years have gone by. There have been many Jewish men and women who have, eyes have been opened, hearts have been opened, and they say, we see that Jesus is the Savior. But there will come a point in time in redemptive history where there will be a wave, a flood, an amazing movement where men and women who have held on to their Jewish identity, their Jewish background, culture, they will profess the gospel. They will receive it and profess that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. I love that despite not keeping themselves for God, God kept them. Okay, so outward appearances, it would look like I don't know how many Jewish people you know, but it would look like they've rejected the Messiah. They have not kept themselves for God as it were. But Paul's message to that church, to the Jews then, and God, or Paul's message to us here today, to both Gentile as well as Jewish, is despite not keeping themselves, God has kept them. I love this picture that God is just faithful It's another reminder of one thing, that God is faithful. Another way to understand that is just God is gracious. I might not be faithful. I might not be keeping myself. The Jews are not keeping themselves right now for God, but God is faithful. God is absolutely gracious. I'm going to stop here got halfway through, but I'm just going to stop here. I'm going to go back and ask you the question that I started with. Is what you know of God leading you to worship him? I've just highlighted two reasons, and we've covered just a handful of verses. But the two things that we've covered of reasons why we can, why we should, why we must worship God is because he does not reject those that reject him. That when you turn, when they, meaning the Jewish nation, turns, God's posture is not like this. God's posture is open-handed, ready to receive, ready to respond in grace. I can worship God because he doesn't reject. He's gracious. And the second reason that I've given is why our theology should lead to doxology is because God is faithful to those he's called, those he's foreknown. If you are in a relationship with God right now, you have called upon Christ as Savior and Lord, I want you to know that God will be faithful. That no matter what happens to you in your lifetime, no matter if you ever have one of those Elijah moments where I'm all by myself, everyone has abandoned the faith and it's just me. No, God will be faithful not only to you, but he will be faithful to those that he has called to himself, to a relationship with himself. And by the way, it's all by grace. 
None of us will ever get to heaven and say, well, I'm here because I was Jewish, or I was here because I was a Catholic, or I'm here because I went to church every day, or I'm here because I was this, or I'm here because I was that. All of us would get to heaven and we will all have the same message, man, it is by grace that I'm here. I'm ready to worship God for eternity. No one will ever enter in saying, well, it's my ethnic identity. It's my church traditions. It's, no, it's absolutely all by grace. Is what you know of God leading you to worship him? We didn't get through as much as I thought we'd get through in Romans 11, but I'll leave you with that question. The end of Romans 11 finished with a doxology, a hymn of praise. God is amazing. If God is like this, if this is what God has done, if he does not reject, if he's made it possible to have a relationship, if he's been gracious, if he's faithful, I can worship God.